Hey there, it's Jason, one of the members of the ENT in a Nutshell team. Thanks for listening to our program. If you enjoy it, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast, and don't hesitate to contact us through headmirror.com with any questions or suggestions. Thanks, and now on to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Alyssa Smith, and today we're joined by pediatric otolaryngologist Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan. Today, we'll be discussing pediatric vocal fold immobility. Thanks for being here, Dr. Balakrishnan. Of course. Thank you, Alyssa. So when discussing this topic, we use some specific terminology, and we're talking about vocal fold immobility. So I think it's probably important that we start by a discussion of the terms immobility versus paralysis versus paresis. Yes, um, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, So this is really important because terms have meaning, and when things go into the medical record, they carry meaning forever. And so it's really important to be careful about the terminology we use. Uh, Immobility is probably the best term to use until you have evidence as to a potential cause when a vocal fold or both vocal folds aren't moving. Immobility is totally agnostic with regard to the cause. The words paralysis and paresis really imply a neurologic cause of some variety. And it's important, I think, to include a fourth term as well of fixation, which would involve some sort of mechanical prevention of focal fold movement, whether cricorytenoid joint fixations, posterior glottic stenosis, scarring of the cord, something like that. So now that we have that in mind, let's talk about presentation. And I think when we talk about presentation, it's important to break this down into unilateral immobility and then bilateral immobility. So focusing first on unilateral vocal fold immobility, how does a patient typically present? So when we think about the three key functions of the larynx, namely voice, breathing, and swallow, uh, that's usually the best way, I think, to break this down. These patients with unilateral vocal fold immobility are typically going to present with voice problems in terms of a weak cry, a breathy or hoarse voice. In terms of swallowing, they can have dysphagia and aspiration-related symptoms as well. Uh, And in some cases can actually have breathing-related problems with stridor. Uh, That's going to be most common with the younger children and infants. And it's sometimes positional, where when the immobile cord is down, it falls out of the airway and opens the airway. Whereas when it's up, it falls into the airway and obstruct. And you'd expect that, for example, with a flaccid, paralyzed cord. Kids with bilateral vocal fold immobility present maybe a little bit differently, though there is some overlap. Typically here, the main problem is with airway obstruction. And voice and dysphagia or swallowing symptoms are a little bit more variable. There has been you know, a lot of discussion in the literature uh, previously about the position of the vocal fold and whether that tells you anything. And it kind of does. Uh, if the cords are more closed, then you're going to have more in the term, more in terms of airway symptoms. And if they're more open, you'll have more voice and swallow problems. But there's quite a lot of overlap. And then thinking about timing of presentation, are there typical ages that these patients will present at? Yes. So for unilateral vocal fold motion, you can have a presentation at birth. Uh, more commonly, it presents after surgery. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit later, I think, about common operative interventions that are that can lead to this. 
up to 20% of unilateral vocal fold immobility can be present at birth associated with forceps delivery as well. Uh, bilateral vocal fold immobility is typically going to be present at birth, but it can present later uh, with particular causes, particularly neurologic disease, Chiari malformation, things like that. But most commonly is going to present at birth. And thinking about the settings that we can see pediatric patients, whether it be inpatient, uh, on the floor, or in the PICU or NICU versus the ED versus in the clinic, is there a typical setting that these patients will present in? Yeah, uh, and it tends to relate to the type of symptoms they have. So the bilateral vocal fold immobility patients will often present in the NICU or uh, shortly after birth in the hospital setting. Um, the unilateral vocal fold immobility patients can present really at any of those settings, depending on the cause. All right. So now that we've discussed presentation, let's move on to pathogenesis. And I think we all know that the mobility of the vocal folds is dependent on the function of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And so can you review with us the normal course of the recurrent laryngeal nerve? Sure. So the recurrent laryngeal nerve has that name because it recurs. It makes a essentially a 180 degree turn. So it uh, comes as part of the vagus nerve, uh, branches off from the vagus nerve in the upper chest. And then uh, on the left side, it loops under the aortic arch right next to the ligamentum arteriosum or ductus arteriosus, depending on the age of the patient. And then runs back up the neck in the tracheoesophageal groove typically until it enters the larynx uh, just adjacent to the cricothyroid joint. On the right side, it follows a very similar course, uh, though instead of looping around the aorta, it loops around the uh, innominate artery. It should be noted that uh, there you can have a non-recurrent recurrent laryngeal nerve that can be associated with an aberrant retroesophageal subclavian artery. Uh, that's an unusual uh, problem, but worth being aware of. So with that normal course in mind, what are some causes of vocal cord immobility? Well, um, as you say, you know, the course, uh, anatomic course of the nerve has a lot to do with that. So unilateral, uh, you can have birth trauma. Um, the causes of that are a bit debatable, uh, but some people will talk about traction, injury to the neck, or even compression. There has been one study actually looking at birth trauma versus truly idiopathic congenital. Uh, which is kind of an interesting study. And while it was a little difficult to differentiate the two, it's suggested that the birth trauma patients were more likely to have unilateral uh, immobility and more likely to recover spontaneously. You can have direct laryngeal trauma uh, from suctioning, traumatic intubation, things like that. Uh, you can have thoracic disease processes like tumors. I mean, in adults, you hear stories about things like uh, ascendic aortic aneurysms and things stretching the nerve. You don't really see that as often in kids. Uh, certainly, uh, thoracic and cardiothoracic surgery can do it. Um, the most common one there is probably PDA ligation, happening in about 1% to 7% of cases. But really, any aortic arch surgery uh, puts that at risk. Uh, you can have, of course, thyroid surgery, and then a central or peripheral neurologic disease. Um, interestingly, in kids, a lot of these are idiopathic as well. We don't really know why. Um, and then really any surgery in the tracheoesophageal groove, so tracheoesophageal fistula repair, um, branchial cleft anomalies that run nearby, things like that. Um, with bilateral immobility, uh, the most common thing we think of in kids uh, is Chiari malformation, and that can be a result of essentially the 
posterior fossa contents herniate down and that causes pressure on the vagus nerves as they exit the skull base. But uh, that can also be an intermittent thing where the Chiari can kind of drop down and cause compression and then rise back up and you can have intermittent symptoms. Uh, Meningomyelocele can do it and then uh, more kind of chronic neurologic disease, spinal muscular atrophy, congenital myasthenia gravis, um, head bleeds can do it. Um, and again, some of these can be idiopathic. And interestingly, there's actually um, a few reports of heritable familial bilateral vocal fold immobility uh, that can be either autosomal dominant or X-linked and seems to be associated with digit abnormalities. All right. So let's move on to workup for these patients. What are some important history questions that we should be asking? So as with any pediatric airway question, uh, you know, a lot of the questions will, uh, or complaint, a lot of the questions will overlap. So we want to know about the birth history. How was the child delivered? Were they term or not? Uh, we want to know about whether they required any respiratory support at birth, whether intubation, oxygen, CPAP. Uh, we want to know when the symptoms started, uh, how soon after birth. And then we want to know what's the impact on the kid. So do they have other respiratory symptoms, you know, cyanosis, retraction, apnea? Have they had brewies or needed CPR? Um, have they had any previous airway surgery, uh, such as needing a tracheostomy, for instance, uh, or interventions for their vocal folds? Um, have they had any other operations, cardiac surgery, thoracic surgery, uh, TEF repair, like we discussed? Um, we want to know about their neurologic history. You know, how's their tone and development otherwise? And then we, you know, that's kind of uh, leads into things like growth history, motor development. Uh, then we want to know about the other functions of the larynx. So we want to know about their voice. What's their cry like? Or if they're old enough to speak, what's their voice like? Um, do they have vocal fatigue? Uh, you know, do they lose their voice when they try to yell or cry because they can't maintain a good closure of the glottis? And then we want to know about swallowing. Uh, do they have dysphagia symptoms? What are they eating now and how are they getting it? Bottled versus breastfeeding, for example. What textures do they take? Uh, do they have any signs of aspiration, recurrent respiratory infections? Have they had previous swallow studies and what did those show? Um, those would be kind of some common things we'd want to know. Uh, and then we want to have a broad differential diagnosis for airway-related symptoms. So thinking about other potential causes of similar symptoms uh, is important as well and then asking relevant questions there. And so moving on to our physical exam, what are some specific physical exam findings that we should be looking for? Yeah, so externally, step one is, again, assess your ABCs. Does the child look stable? Are they in acute distress? Um, if you have the ability to do vitals in the clinic or in the setting where you're evaluating the child, then that's helpful. Uh, saturations, respiratory rate, heart rate is important. Then you, you know, in addition to a full head and neck exam, looking for other congenital anomalies, things like that, uh, you want to do your good airway and respiratory exam. So do they have retractions, cyanosis, accessory muscle use, increased work of breathing in any way? Do they have strider? If so, is it inspiratory versus expiratory or is it biphasic? Um, what's their voice and cry like? If they don't cry during the exam, they'll probably cry, cry later when you do your flexible laryngoscopy. Um, you want to listen to their lungs, but then you also want to do careful uh, auscultation of the heart because, again, a lot of these kids will have congenital heart disease or something else, and maybe they've had cardiac surgery, maybe they haven't. But, uh, you know, uh, as, the, as the clinician, that's part of your responsibility to examine as well. The flexible laryngoscopy is a 
I think, essential part of the physical exam here as well. And so being prepared to do that is important. Um, it can be tricky in a young baby, uh, but getting a good view of that glottis to really assess motion is important. There are some data that suggest that inter-rated reliability for flexible laryngoscopy and vocal fold motion is great if you say, yes, there's motion or no, there's not. But the subtleties of is it normal or is it weak uh, are not quite as reliable. So having a sort of consistent ability to judge in your own mind, I think is important. And then with those physical exam and laryngoscopy findings in mind, I think that there's a few other investigational tools that are available. And so can we first start by discussing the use of ultrasound in diagnosis? Yes, of course. So um, there are several people uh, in the United States and elsewhere who have done a lot of great work on ultrasound for laryngeal assessment in children. There are some data that suggests that you can assess uh, the larynx effectively with ultrasound even into the third and fourth decade of life before things get too calcified. So the ultrasound, uh, I typically prefer to use the small hockey stick probe uh, with the Sonosite ultrasound, but you can use whatever you have. A lot of people use small portable uh, tablet-based ultrasounds as well. It is fine if the baby's crying, um, but keep in mind that uh, if they are crying, young babies in particular will maybe not snap their vocal folds open as much when they take a breath in during crying. Typically, I just use a transverse uh, or axial view and uh, identify the air column of the trachea and then scan upwards until I can see the arytenoids and glottis. Uh, and then I just sit there and watch for a while. One thing I would say, it's important, try to keep the ultrasound uh, plane very flat, very axial, because it's easy to tilt it when you get under the pudgy chin of the baby. And then it's very hard to interpret, uh, I think, at that point. Uh, it's also worth recording it so you can look at it later and confirm. Um, I will say that ultrasound is not perfect. It is generally pretty easy to interpret if you know what you're looking for, but uh, sometimes it'll disagree with flexible laryngoscopy. Uh, and if that's the case, then I would tend to trust the flexible laryngoscopy more. And then how about laryngeal EMG? Is that used in the pediatric population? It is used. It can be used and can sometimes be very useful. So laryngeal EMG, I think, has use in a couple of applications. The first is it's one way to differentiate a neurologic etiology from a fixation. Or if you're not sure if both exist, it's a way to look for that. Another is to look for recovery of function, uh, as with any other EMG. The challenge in kids, unlike adults, is that most kids are not going to put up with EMG needles being inserted transcervically when they're awake and then doing voluntary voicing and so on. So what typically ends up happening is this is done under a light general anesthetic, a similar plane to like a sleep state endoscopy maybe, uh, or a little deeper. And you can either put the elect uh, needle electrodes transcervically, or some people have actually put them transorally with a wire attached to something like a butterfly needle uh, and inserted them into the vocalis muscles that way. Uh, I typically do it transcervically. And then with the child under light anesthetic, hopefully they're breathing spontaneously enough that you can actually see the abductors uh, in action when they take an inspiratory breath. And then how about the role of video swallow studies? Yeah, so video swallow studies and other, uh, or, or fees, you know, these instrumental swallow studies are important. Because many of these children, as we discussed, can have swallowing symptoms um, and how it looks on flexible laryngoscopy in terms of the position of the cords and so on does not necessarily predict what their swallow function is like and their airway protection is like. So I tend to do at least one of those two studies on everybody, uh, unless they're an older kid 
who has a unilateral immobility, who has zero symptoms whatsoever, who's neurologically otherwise normal, and it's sort of an isolated problem of unilateral vocal fold immobility, maybe I'd skip it on them. But the thing is, especially in the young kids, if you're putting a flex scope in the nose anyway, it takes very little additional effort to just try to do a FEES study and see what's going on. Um, another option is what's called a SEAS study, a static endoscopic evaluation of swelling, where you feed the child a little bit of green dyed material and then put the scope in and just see if there's anything left or anything obviously in the airway. That can be a good backup option as well. Um, and these are all useful studies to do uh, potentially before you go to the operating room to do a more formal airway endoscopy. And then are there any other imaging studies that could be helpful in this setting? Yeah, definitely. So um, it really depends on your suspicion for certain causes. Uh, certainly if you have a child with bilateral immobility where you suspect a neurologic cause or you don't have another obvious explanation, then MR of the brainstem uh, is very helpful to evaluate for Chiari. Uh, again, sometimes that Chiari can be intermittent. So I have had a patient in the past where the initial MRI didn't catch it and the child had intermittent symptoms and essentially a cine MRI had to be done to, to capture that. Um, if you think there's thoracic pathology, then CT or echo or whatever else, depending on your suspicion, may be appropriate as well. Uh, and then sometimes you just do a full MRI of the course of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. If you can't find an etiology, I would say from experience, that's not always particularly revealing. And then before we move on to natural history, are there any associated syndromes that we should be thinking about for these patients? Yeah, so um, there are a few. Uh, Mobius syndrome is one that's very much worth mentioning. People usually think of facial nerve problems with Mobius syndrome, but I believe that the uh, vocal fold mobility is, is a very common, I think it's the second most common uh, cranial nerve uh, affected. Um, and then we talked a little bit about how some of these kids can have bilateral familial immobility. And then I think really anything where you know a kid has a history of something that might lead to increased risk surgically uh, for recurrent nerve injury, for example, charge, vectoral, anything where there's a TEF, for instance, those kids are going to be, you know, more prone to needing surgery and therefore potentially have vocal fold, uh, immobility from a recurrent nerve injury. Um, so, and then those things are worth considering as well. If you're going to take the kid to the operating room for an MDLB, uh, because they might affect operative risk or, or they might lead you to look for other airway things as well. So you mentioned microlaryngoscopy and bronchoscopy as a method for uh, continued workup of these patients. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, MLB or MDLB uh, is an important uh, tool in the assessment of these patients, often combined with flexible bronchoscopy. Um Microdirect laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy lets you do a few things. The first thing it does, it lets you get a really detailed anatomic look at the cords and the glottis, as well as the rest of the larynx. Another thing it lets you do is to palpate the cricoretinoid joints to see if there's any fixation. The uh, MDLB also lets you look for things like posterior glottic stenosis that may tether the vocal folds and may be tricky to see uh, on flexible laryngoscopy in the awake child. Um, and then it lets you look for other associated airway abnormalities, such as TE fistula, laryngeal cleft, or other things that may affect your clinical decision-making. Uh, the flexible bronchoscopy helps you look at the lower airways, look for sequelae of aspiration, look for dynamic vocal fold problems or other airway problems that might not be as evident on rigid endoscopy. So um, I think if I have any question in my mind uh, on why a child has a particular vocal fold immobility concern, uh, I would have a very low threshold to do operative airway endoscopy. All right. So moving on to natural history, 
How many patients will just recover spontaneously from a vocal fold immobility? So the good news is that kids tend to recover. Um, so about 70% of non-iatrogenic unilateral vocal fold paralysis will resolve spontaneously. Uh, again, if it's a birth trauma, maybe that recovers a little bit more than a uh, idiopathic congenital unilateral immobility. Um, typically, recovery is going to occur in the first six months. Uh, when we look at kids who have had cardiac surgery, uh, the data suggests that about a third or 35% or so will recover spontaneously. Uh, and if you have bilateral vocal fold immobility, about 65% of those will recover over time. Uh, it's not always a symmetric recovery. You can have partial recovery on one side and complete recovery on the other, for example. Uh, and the time course is very variable. Uh, in general, if there are no associated abnormalities, the prognosis is better. Most people would argue that the recovery is likely to occur within the first two years, maybe the first three years. Um, and that if the recovery occurs after three years or so, it, it may be incomplete because the laryngeal muscles are atrophied. Uh, you may have cricoretinoid fixation, or maybe you'll have synkinesis because there's been some reinnervation that's not entirely normal. Um, there are some people who argue that in these patients, you can have recovery several years later, and so you should not do aggressive destructive intervention for that. Um, I think that that opinion is currently in the minority, but it may change over time. Okay, so let's talk about treatment now. In general, what is the treatment approach for these patients? And given that so many of them may recover spontaneously, can these patients be managed conservatively? Definitely. Um, the decision to treat really depends on the individual patient. What are the consequences they're having from their immobility? How is it affecting their function? And what are their other comorbidities? So just to give you a quick example, if you have a child with a unilateral vocal fold immobility after aortic arch surgery, their chance of recovery, again, is pretty good. Maybe a third will recover and they recover pretty promptly. But if that child is aspirating floridly, you may be very concerned about soiling the lungs in a child with medical fragility and complex congenital heart disease, you may be more prone to intervene despite their decent chance of recovering. Um, that said, if a child is executing their key laryngeal functions of breathing, swallow, and voice effectively and staying healthy, you can manage them conservatively, even if their laryngoscopy looks terrible. Um, in the very young kids, voice is probably the least concerning, airway first, then feeding, then voice. In the older kids, that order may be rearranged. And so thinking about timing as far as who would be a good candidate for surgical intervention, is there a specific time that you would allow uh, for spontaneous recovery before you would proceed with maybe permanent intervention? Yes, there is. I would wait to do anything destructive or irreversible or anything that might affect the ability for the child to recover spontaneously, I would hold that off for at least 18 to 24 months, if I can. And then thinking about the variety of surgical options that are available, let's first focus on a unilateral vocal fold immobility. What are the different surgical options that are available for this patient? The surgical options in kids are very similar to those in adults, but we weigh them a little bit differently. So again, in unilateral paralysis or immobility, the problem is that there's typically too much of a glottic gap leading to trouble with voice and swallowing and potentially 
difficulty with airway. One option that's commonly used is injection laryngoplasty, essentially bulking the cord and medializing it a little bit. This is typically done under general anesthesia. Unlike adults, you typically can't get away with awake injection in kids. The uh, procedure is done with microdirect laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy, uh, palpating the cricoretinoid joints to rule out fixation, ruling out any other potential etiologies. And once you see that things are good, then you can inject that material into the paraglottic space. Uh, I typically will do two sites of injection, one just anterolateral to the vocal process through the arcuate line to try to get the vocal process rotated medially and the posterior cord medialized, and then one about a third of the way back from the anterior commissure to get the anterior cord medialized. There are multiple types of materials that can be used, and people debate which are safe and appropriate. Common ones that are used include uh, calcium hydroxyapatite, which lasts for an undetermined period of time but may be permanent. Uh, some people will use uh, uh, the carrier for that, which the brand name for that is a Prolarin gel, uh, which lasts four to six weeks as a temporary intervention. Some people will use cadaveric dermis or Symetra. You can use uh, gelatin powder, gelatin sponge like gel foam, and you can use autologous fat. Um, those would be kind of the, the common ones that are used. You have to be careful when you inject because if you over-inject a child, you can significantly narrow their airway and cause airway compromise. It doesn't take much in a baby. Uh, the benefit lasts variably. The thought uh, is, and this is extrapolated in some ways from the adult literature, is that the benefit can last longer than the injected material is present because if you reposition the cord into a better place and then the person develops some synkinesis in that position, they'll end up better off in the long term. Uh, some people do need repeat injections, though, as the material fades. Another option would be medialization laryngoplasty or thyroplasty. I don't tend to do that very often in kids, and I think most people do not uh, for a, f a few reasons. The first is, uh, unlike adults, again, most kids are not going to put up with voice tuning intraop with a flex scope in the nose and them half awake and you manipulating the implant. Uh, another part of it is that as children grow, you may have to replace the implant. Uh, and I have heard some laryngologists say that they worry about implanting very young people because there's just more time for the implant to extrude or have complications as well. Um, I tend not to favor that procedure in young kids. The combination of thyroplasty and arytenoid adduction is also possible. It's been reported in kids, again, not done very commonly. Uh, the more preferred option in kids who have gotten to the point where they're unlikely to recover, in other words, it's been 18 to 24 months, would be laryngeal reinnervation. There is a study from the laryngoscope from several years ago demonstrating that in young adults even, uh, up through early middle age, uh, that reinnervation tends to have better outcomes than thyroplasty. And certainly in kids where their plasticity is so much more, I would tend to believe that even more. Um, so there are lots of different ways to do reinnervation. Uh, the ansa cervicalis to recurrent nerve is the most common for unilateral immobility in children when it's from a neurologic source. Uh, this restores vocal fold tone, but it does not restore motion. Remember, you're essentially randomly reinnervating the motor neurons, uh, and therefore uh, you're likely to get synkinesis. And the idea then is you want to get synkinesis in a better position, so this is often combined with injection laryngoplasty. You usually start to see results from the reinnervation in three to six months, but you'll see them sooner if you do the laryngoplasty injection at the same time. And there's some data uh, from Karen Zur at CHOP, for example, uh, 
that this can also be helpful. Reinnervation can also be helpful for kids who have dysphagia and aspiration problems related to unilateral vocal fold immobility from a neurologic cause. And then how about some of the options available for a patient with bilateral immobility? So for bilateral immobility, the tables are turned a little bit and the priorities are a bit different. So these kids, again, typically will have airway symptoms as their biggest problem and voice and swallow as a perhaps secondary problems. So one option is simply to do tracheostomy. And that is sometimes what you end up doing. And there are some people who favor that because it's non-destructive in a lot of ways. It does not affect the chance for spontaneous recovery. And maybe it'll take several years, but these kids may recover function enough or grow their airway enough that you can decannulate them without other interventions. That said, I think we're all aware that tracheostomy in young children has its own significant drawbacks, uh, which are, we're not going to go into that here. Um, So what are the other options? There are a lot of other options. The non-destructive options here include temporary suture lateralization. I think that is truly a temporary procedure in children, perhaps unlike adults. The suture typically cheese wires through the cord and the cord goes back to where it was fairly rapidly. But it is theoretically reversible, though you can have scarring laterally of the cord with it. You could do more destructive things like cordotomy or cordotomy plus partial arytenoidectomy. If I'm going to do that, I'll often combine that with a suture lateralization. So when you release the cord from the vocal process and it becomes thick and retracted anteriorly, I'll then lateralize that anterior remnant so that it scars out and creates more space. Um, You can do an arytenopexy uh, as well. Oftentimes when you have a neurologic uh, origin, you have a flaccid cord and the arytenoid will tip forward and medially. And so you can tip it back and laterally. Um, Or you could do somewhat less destructive things, for instance, anterior-posterior cricoid split, which can be done endoscopically in the vast majority of kids. Uh, You leave them intubated with a large tube for about 10 days. And there's at least one study uh, that suggests that you can have about a 75% success rate with that in terms of either avoiding tracheostomy or decannulating children who are already tracheostomized. Um, I'm not sure the success rate is that high now that we've had further experience, but it's a great option to avoid tracheostomy if you've tried everything else. Uh, You can do an endoscopic posterior cricoid split with a cartilage graft, so an endoscopic posterior uh, laryngotracheoplasty. Uh, That's a great option. I would typically reserve that for kids who are six months to a year or older, but we have done it younger and succeeded. Uh, And then there is a new option, which is the phrenic to... uh, recurrent reinnervation, uh, which has been done in adults, but there are a few practitioners, including one currently in the United States, who are doing this for children, and the early results seem promising. Uh, I think this is a technically very demanding operation, and it's something that needs more study in kids, but maybe become a very viable option for appropriately chosen patients with bilateral cord immobility in the future. And then thinking about management postoperatively, how are these patients typically managed? And I think we can probably break this up as well in the unilateral and bilateral groups. So unilateral, you know, again, it depends on what their symptoms are. So oftentimes if voice is the main concern, then you focus on that and you follow them up, especially the older kids with things like voice therapy, video stroboscopy, as you would with an adult patient. Uh, if dysphagia is the problem, then you may get a follow-up swallow study uh, and track them that way. Uh, 
So it really is driven a lot by their symptoms um, preoperatively. The bilateral vocal fold immobility kids uh, can be a little more involved, again, because you're focused mostly on airway. And then it really depends on what your intervention was. So if you did a tracheostomy, then I would follow them in clinic or, or in the hospital uh, as I would any other tracheostomy patient, but I would tend to flex scope them every time in clinic to see if they're recovering any function. Uh, and I think really for either unilateral or bilateral, it, all other things being equal, I would want to see these kids in clinic every three to six months to do a flex scope and a stroboscopy if they're old enough uh, to assess whether they've had recovery of function. And then I think an important part of this is counseling the parents or the team taking care of the patient on outcomes. So first, focusing on if a patient is aspirating pre-op, what can we tell the team or the parents about whether an injection or other intervention will help? That's a really important question. So counseling is critical here because none of these things is a guarantee. And as with any other laryngeal intervention, improving one of the laryngeal functions may compromise some of the others. So uh, for instance, if you do an injection laryngoplasty for a kid with unilateral vocal cord immobility who has some dysphagia or aspiration problems, that may be very, very successful. Uh, and there's some data that suggests that about two-thirds of patients can advance their diet uh, after injection, and that's even very young kids. Um, but that's two-thirds of kids, so that means one-third maybe won't be able to. So it's important to set realistic expectations and to make it very clear to families that the child will need ongoing follow-up, particularly as the injection material fades. Thinking about uh, a patient that may have difficulty with their voice, another function of the larynx, how can we counsel parents or the patient even on improvements that we can expect in their voice? So it's a little easier to be confident about voice, I think, than it is to be confident about swallowing function after these interventions. You know, if a kid has bilateral vocal fold immobility and significant airway problems, then I would tend to counsel the parents that the voice is probably going to be worse after surgery. But often children compensate. And so the voice may get worse for a while and then improve somewhat, though it may not be totally normal. Uh, and so that's an important discussion to have with parents preoperatively, is whether that's a trade-off they're willing to make. Most parents are. Uh, with unilateral immobility, it's a little more established, probably because we've learned a lot from our adult colleagues, uh, that injection medialization, reinnervation, they all tend to be quite successful. Um, they often will require voice therapy, and I usually will send kids to voice therapy beforehand if they're old enough so that they're prepped and ready to go. And then moving on to decannulation for a patient that has bilateral immobility and needed a trach. How do you can't, uh, counsel parents about the chance of decannulation in the future? So I would tell parents in that case that the chance of decannulation is excellent, um, but it really depends on what interventions you have to do in the meantime. So again, if we watch and wait, a reasonable number of these patients will recover over time. If the, that's assuming a neurologic cause, uh, if the child has a Chiari, that Chiari is repaired, then the chance of improvement is very good. If there's scarring, stenosis, fixation, then we may have to do airway reconstruction. Uh, if you know, So it really depends on the cause and what interventions are required. But assuming that the child has an isolated glottic obstruction due to bilateral immobility, that's a pretty good candidate to do something to get that trach out.
And then thinking about the child that is now two or three years out from their diagnosis, we're pretty sure that they have a permanent paralysis. What do you tend to see as far as requiring additional surgery throughout their life? Again, it really depends on what we've done them done to them to begin with. So uh, in a kid who's had a trach, I would counsel the parents that especially if it's been a long-term trach, that there's a decent chance we'd have to do something reconstructive to get the tracheostomy out, whether it is to open the glottis more or whether it is to deal with superstomal collapse, for instance, uh, you know, we're likely to have to do something. Uh, if the child has already had, let's say, a reconstruction, then they're going to need ongoing follow-up to make sure that their airway stays patent and grows with them. Um, that said, as that kid gets older, we can do more and more of this in the clinic, including things like awake tracheoscopy uh, to examine the airway. Uh, if the child has had something to spread the posterior glottis, like an anterior-posterior split or a posterior graft, then that's a kid too where I would counsel the family and the child that when the child hits their teenage years, will want to watch their voice in particular carefully because there are some kids who then need a posterior cricoid reduction to improve their voice. But again, that requires long-term follow-up and individualized decision-making. So we've talked about kind of long-term follow-up schedule and what that typically looks like for patients, but there are, are there any long-term co uh, complications that we should be looking for that are commonly seen or rarely seen in these patients? Definitely. So it goes back to those three functions of the larynx. You know, if we do something to enlarge the glottic airway, then we have to watch for long-term consequences of dysphagia and aspiration, and we have to watch for long-term consequences to the voice. And again, there are some people who show up years later in their teenage years or young adult years, and they're not satisfied with their voice anymore because now their voice is more important to them either for work functions, for school, for social interaction, and so on. Um, similarly, if there's any concern about glottic obstruction, from an airway standpoint, then as those kids get older and they get into competitive sports or other activities that require good airway function or optimal airway function, things may manifest that weren't obvious to begin with. Um, from an aspiration or dysphagia standpoint, we obviously want to follow them there because if they have long-term ongoing silent aspiration in particular that just doesn't get detected, that could cause significant lung damage. So kind of it depends on where they started <laughs> and what's been done to them as to what the long-term complications might be. All right, Dr. Balakrishnans, is there anything else you'd like to add? The only other thing I would like to add is I think as with any complex airway voice swallow concern, these children can get good care in a lot of places and it may be worth considering having them evaluated in a multidisciplinary aerodigestive or airway program so that all those different functions of the larynx and any associated syndromes or diseases or conditions can be assessed holistically and dealt with together because I think that that does the best service to the patient rather than focusing purely on voice or purely on airway, for example. All right, Dr. Balakrishnan, thanks again for joining us. Uh, thank you, Alyssa. This has been a pleasure. In summary, when thinking about patients with vocal fold immobility and how they present, it's important to think about the three main functions of the larynx. These include voice, breathing, and swallowing. 
Patients with a unilateral vocal fold immobility can typically present with strider, a weak cry or hoarse voice, and then dysphagia or even aspiration. A patient with bilateral vocal fold immobility will typically have symptoms more related to airway obstruction. Some common causes of a unilateral immobility include birth trauma, which can be from a traction-type injury from forceps delivery, or even direct laryngeal trauma from traumatic intubation or aggressive suctioning. It can also be from a thoracic disease process such as a tumor, iatrogenic damage during thoracic or cervical surgery, and then a central or peripheral neurologic disease. It can also be completely idiopathic as well. A bilateral immobility can be caused by a Chiari malformation, meningomyelocele, spinal muscular atrophy, congenital myasthenia gravis, and then subdural hemorrhage or other intracranial bleed. We can also see bilateral familial vocal fold immobility, which is associated with digit abnormalities. Some important history questions that we should be asking include a birth history such as whether or not there was any intubation or any airway uh, difficulty at the time of birth, Uh, the age at which symptoms developed if they weren't present immediately at birth, their growth history, current diet, including signs of aspiration, their surgical history specifically focusing on thoracic, thyroid, and cardiac surgeries, and then their overall tone and neurologic symptoms. When performing a physical exam, it's important to determine whether or not the patient is stable or unstable and perform our typical ABCs. We should also be assessing their voice and auscultating their lungs and their heart. Cardiac auscultation is important because a lot of these patients will present with cardiac abnormalities as well. Flexical laryngoscopy is helpful for determining whether or not an immobility is present, although it's not always completely sensitive for determining whether or not there is impaired mobility. Microdirect laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy under anesthesia can also help rule out any other airway anomalies, a cricoarytenoid joint fixation, and then posterior glottic stenosis as well. Ultrasound and laryngeal EMG can also provide helpful diagnostic information. And an MRI can be helpful to diagnose a Chiari malformation or even evaluate the complete course of the recurrent laryngeal nerve to determine if there's any lesions. When thinking about treatment options for a patient with a unilateral immobility, this is often a problem where there's too much gap in the glottis and therefore voice and swallowing problems. Some options include injection laryngoplasty for which there's a variety of materials that last a various amount of time. And then laryngeal reinnervation, which, as a reminder, restores vocal fold tone but not motion. Some older children may be a candidate for medialization laryngoplasty or thyroplasty, but this is not done very commonly. For patients with a bilateral immobility, again, this is a problem of not enough glottic gap. These patients can sometimes require a tracheostomy. Some other interventions include suture lateralization of the vocal fold, a lateral chordotomy, a retinoidectomy, a retinoid pexy, anterior-posterior cricoid split, and endoscopic posterior cricoid split with a cartilage graft. Some investigators are also looking at the possibility of reinnervation for these patients. Regardless of whether there is unilateral or bilateral immobility, these patients require long-term close follow-up, and this is to assess for any complications such as glottic obstruction, dysphagia, silent aspiration, or worsening vocal outcomes. And as with most complex pediatric problems, these patients can be best managed by a multidisciplinary team. 
I'll now move on to the question portion of this podcast. As a reminder, I will ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. The first question is, what is the typical course of the recurrent laryngeal nerve? The recurrent laryngeal nerve is a branch of the vagus nerve and supplies all of the intrinsic muscles of the uh, larynx with the exception of the cricothyroid muscles. So both the left and right recurrent laryngeal nerve exit the skull base as the vagus nerve. The left recurrent laryngeal nerve loops under the aortic arch next to the ligamentum arteriosum and the right loops under the innominate artery. They both then travel superiorly in the tracheoesophageal groove and enter the larynx adjacent to the cricothyroid joint. The course of this nerve is important to keep in mind because any lesion along its course can result in a vocal fold immobility. The second question is what is the natural history of patients with a vocal fold immobility and how frequently can we expect patients to recover spontaneously? Patients with a non-iatrogenic unilateral vocal fold immobility will typically recover spontaneously about 70% of the time. And this usually occurs in the first six months. For patients that have cardiac surgery and have an iatrogenic injury, about 35% of them will recover spontaneously. And then finally, for patients born with a bilateral vocal fold immobility, about 65% of them will have recovery of function. It's important to keep in mind that recovery is not always symmetric, that their prognosis is better if there's no associated anomalies, and that if recovery occurs after about three years, it's usually incomplete, and this is due to uh, laryngeal muscle atrophy, cricorotenoid fixation, and even synkinesis. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.